Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Our show today is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a fiduciary law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute, our show's hashtag as Wealth Matters, or look at our website, gasowitzfrankel.com. Your hosts today are Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel, and we're talking about special needs trusts. As you may know, our law firm is presenting in a year of charitable giving in celebration of our 25th anniversary. So before we start the show, let's give a big shout out to some of the charities that we recently have supported. Create Your Dreams, Live Thrive, and Families First. Let's introduce our guest today. Uh, first, we have Fontaine Lee, who is Vice President and Development Officer at Cumberland Trust and Investment Company. Uh, Kristen Lewis, who's an attorney at Smith, Gambrell, and Russell, and Kathy Keeley, who's executive director of All About Developmental Disabilities. And before we get into the substantive questions, why don't you each uh, just take a second and uh, tell us who you are and about your company. Hi, I'm Fontaine Lee with Cumberland Trust. We're an independent trust company serving in trust administration only, and uh, we have several niche areas in addition to uh, personal trust, special needs trust, as well as distinctive care serving elderly clients. Kristen? I am an attorney at Smith, Gambrell & Russell where uh, I specialize in special needs planning for families that have beneficiaries or loved ones with various disabilities and I've been doing that for 30 years. But she only looks like she's been doing it for 10. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> and Kathy? So I represent All About Developmental Disabilities and we support people to live independent in the community. Um, currently, we support about 425 individuals in five counties, including right here in Gwinnett, um, live in their own apartments, help them find employment, help them engage in the community, all kinds of good activities. Okay. All right, well, let's start with uh, just the basics. Um, maybe, Kristen, you can start with this one. Just why don't you tell us what special needs trusts are? A special needs trust is a professionally managed fund that supplements government benefit programs that the beneficiaries are otherwise eligible for as a consequence of their disabling condition. So the funds in a special needs trust um, do not supplant those government benefits, many of which are what we call means-tested, and they supplement what the government programs don't pay for. And when you say means-tested, Means-tested uh, says that in order to have certain of these programs, Medicaid and Supplemental Security Income primarily, um, a person cannot have more than $2,000 worth of uh, non-exempt assets. So the assets in a special needs trust, none of them count against the beneficiary for purposes of these means-tested benefits. Let's take another step back to be really basic, to talk to our audience Tell me what a special needs child or adult is. A person with special needs uh, is challenged by any number of disabling conditions. In my practice, probably the number one disabling condition that new clients come to me uh, with is autism. There has been just an explosion of autism diagnosis now that the doctors know what they're looking for. And so there are millions of families who need special needs expertise, both from the legal standpoint as well as uh, from the trustee standpoint and, of course, our wonderful AADD support system as well. 
Is that what you're seeing also, Kathy? So I, the number actually is one in 68. Um, children are diagnosed with autism right now. Um, total developmental disabilities, one in six children are diagnosed. Now, when we talk so, about those numbers, these are not people necessarily all who would be disabled. It's a spectrum, isn't it? It's a very long, large spectrum, yes. You can have people that are gifted um, but may have behavior issues. You can have people that have cognitive issues, social, they call it social adaptive. Maybe they don't like to look at you. Maybe they don't want to speak to you. Um, maybe they have anger issues. Maybe they have learning disabilities. It is a, a large category of individuals. Who, who fits on the spectrum, and when we get on the spectrum, to would actually be able to qualify and benefit from a special needs trust? Well, the government's definition of disabled looks at the person's ability to engage in substantial gainful employment. So that is the definition for purposes of qualifying for SSI, Medicaid, SSDI, these disability-linked um, benefit programs. And SSI and SSDI are, are actually disability programs. They are. Um, SSI is a, a monthly cash benefit that if you prove that you meet the definition of disabled and you are of limited means, you are eligible for, in 2015, a whopping $733 a month, which is the government's idea of how much it costs to feed and shelter a person for a month. Nowhere around here can a person do that for $733 a month, but there you go. And SSDI um, is what we call an employment-linked government benefit that is keyed to somebody's work record. And with our clients, many times it's the parent's work record that entitles their adult child with a disability to get this benefit. And Kathy, you look like you wanted to ask. Well, something. I just want to talk about the diagnosis, you know, on the spectrum or any kind. What we, we probably review a couple thousand a year, qualifying people. And what we do is go back to school records, even for people that are 60 and 70 years old. We have found records 50, 60 years old in the basements of schools, literally. Um, and that's in your school, they di do diagnose you and they do write up something as part of an IEP, an individual education plan. And those diagnoses hold with Social Security, they hold with uh, our state government plans, they hold getting services from us. Okay. All right. So, can anybody set up a special needs trust? Does that have to be a parent or a grandparent? Well, the government, the federal <laughs> government, uh, weighed in on special needs trust officially in 1993. And there is a federal statute that authorizes what we call a first party special needs trust. And in the universe of special needs trust, there are two basic distinctions. And they are both geared towards whose property is funding the trust. So a first party special needs trust is one that's funded with the assets of the individual with the disability. And is this normally talking like, for example, perhaps a, an accident or something where the money's coming from a settlement? In the early days of doing special needs trusts in the late 80s, probably 90% of the special needs trusts I did were in the context of a personal injury settlement. So the person was injured, the trial attorney went out and got either a verdict or a settlement, and then it was necessary to put those funds in a first-party special needs trust. Um, and Fontaine, let me ask you this. When, back in those days, you were probably a, a child at that point. But in those days, back in the 80s and early 90s, were you seeing the special needs trust also coming from personal injury settlements? Or were you seeing it from the next type we're going to hear about? No, that's actually um, 
how Cumberland got started in this business was um, there was a lot of personal injury suits, medical malpractice settlements in the court system in Tennessee. Um, and they saw most of those going into structured settlements, annuities, and it really didn't fit for the families. Often if you needed to buy a handicapped vehicle or retrofit a home or other very costly you know, expenses up front, those structured settlements and annuities weren't going to provide the necessary cash flow. And as Cumberland was first getting its start in the early 2000s, uh, there was a judge in Tennessee who said, you know what, you're going to do it. And that is how we got into the business. And we very quickly fell in love with it and being able to really use our expertise to help these families because it is not easy. You know, a trust does not work like just a checking account with a fancy title. Um, there are rules and regulations that have to be adhered to. And without the proper training and understanding um, from both a legal and financial background, it can be very difficult. Uh, so, and that is still the majority of our special needs trust are those settlement situations. Uh, but as Kristen said, in recent years, we have seen it really start to balance more towards, you know, autism, things of a, di of a diagnosis well, and, nature. And I would say it's even going to change more. We know we have 21,000 aging baby boomers in Georgia that have adult children living at home with them. They're going to need special needs trusts. We're out every day doing workshops, talking to people, trying to talk about all of your services to get them to come see you because they don't have plans and they can't sit around and wait for a settlement or somebody else. They've got to be proactive and set up that trust for that child. And when we talk about adults living at home, these aren't the kids that go to college, don't get a job and come home. No, these are kids with disabilities. <laughs> right, right. Okay. No, I'm talking about... I know. So, so this They've is been the, there the whole time. And Chris said this is the second type of trust. These are kind of what, what is, I think they're called third party. Correct. And so uh, when people are doing special needs planning on a proactive basis... And parents, typically, sometimes grandparents, are putting their funds into a special needs trust. That's what we call a third-party trust. Anybody can set up a third-party special needs trust. With respect to a first-party special needs trust, the federal statute that um, authorizes them does specify who can set the trust up. And those are limited to parents and grandparents, a legal guardian or conservator, uh, or a court. And uh, oddly enough, the person with a disability cannot set up their own first party special needs trust, which sometimes is a problem if you have a person with a disability, but they don't have any living parents or grandparents, and their disability is not severe enough to qualify them for a guardian or conservator. There is, however, another option for folks like that. Uh, Fontaine and Kathy and I are most used to dealing with privately administered single beneficiary special needs trust, at the kind that you need a lawyer to help you with. Um, but there is another kind of trust called a pooled special needs trust that was actually authorized by the same 1993 statute that authorized the kind that we all work with primarily. And uh, Georgia is fortunate to have um, a wonderful pooled special needs trust called the Georgia Community Trust. And actually, AADD um, is collaborating with the Georgia Community Trust as we speak to um, take over the uh, administration of that. And there's about 250 participants in the Georgia Community Trust um, at present, and we want to make that an option going forward for many more people. It's a very cost-effective 
um, option for people that don't have the means or the the funds to put into a privately administered um, special needs trust. Uh, let me just reset for a second. Uh, uh, you're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And we're talking today with Kristen Lewis, Fontaine Lee, and Kathy Keeley discussing the topic of special needs trusts. And let me ask you uh, one question because this is something my father had asked me a number of years ago with regard to our handicapped sister. Um, he wanted to know why as a parent he couldn't just leave his assets to his other children and have his children take care of uh, our sister as opposed to setting up a trust. And I'm sure you hear that a lot. Um, I, it, it absolutely astounds me how often clients will come to me and say that they've been given advice by very respected attorneys in our community to disinherit the child with special needs and just leave that child's share to a typical sibling or another family member who will do the right thing by that child. And um, assuming you could find a family member who is willing to do the right thing, it almost never happens the way the parent intends. And it's largely because of creditor problems that the designated family member might have. They get sued. You know, they don't pay their taxes. Uh, they go through a messy divorce. Any number of things could result in the um, child with a disability share of the um, estate being confiscated and not used for that child's benefit. Tell me how, and Fontaine, maybe you can jump in. How, do, how does a special needs trust actually work for the benefit of the disabled person, but also with the input, so to speak, of the parent who's not out of the picture yet? Well, you know, it's that's an ideal situation for us, um, is to be able to work with parents uh, in helping administer these special needs trusts, because they really know their child and know their needs and can be their advocate from that perspective. Um, and, and then we are there to help provide the funds that, you know, as Kristen said, provide for needs over and above what the government benefits allow for. And then often that gives us a great family history and understanding when those parents have passed away and allows us to really step into that role um, and look at it not just from the financial perspective, but the overall needs of that individual. Is, is it common or appropriate or a good idea for the parent to be a co-trustee with some professional or even in other ways, or is it is it better for there to be a separate fiduciary or well, trustee? Most of the time, our parents do not fund a special needs trust significantly while they're still alive. The number one funding mechanism is life insurance on the parents. But part of special needs planning, sure, you need to get a special needs trust that passes muster. Uh, but more so is putting together your team of what I call allied professionals. And one of the frustrating things about special needs planning is that there's no such thing as one-stop shopping. Families would love to be able to go to one uh, office and have everything they need in that one spot, and it just doesn't work that way. But that's also a very liberating aspect of special needs planning. 
Um, the old many hands make light work. And um, while parents are doing their legal documents, we also ask them to put together their team. A team member obviously includes a trustee that's willing to embrace special needs trust. It might include a life care planner that can inform the trustee once the trust is funded on what can we use this money for, and it's not a bottomless pit of money, how do we budget the money that we have? And is that life care planner typically a professional or a family member? It is. There is a whole cottage industry of life care planners. It's not regulated very well, so you never know for sure. But these but are people who specialize in handling these different These are independent consultants. We have a number of them we work with. They're individuals. Often they have a family member themselves that kind of learned the hard way, and they've made a small cottage industry, if you will, a business out of um, consulting with families and helping them put the plans together. Do they tend to specialize in one type of disability or another? No. Many of them have medical backgrounds, either doctors or nursing, but Mm -hmm. so too social worker backgrounds. The other thing that's important to put together if we're talking about this plan is also a letter of intent. Explain what a letter of intent is. So the, there's not only the money management and the budgeting, but there's also understanding everything about the child. So a letter of intent puts together and attaches often to a will. Who's the dentist? Who cuts their hair? How do you cut their toenails? How do you? What foods are they allergic to? When do they have their medications? What's their favorite food? It is... Putting together, uh, it can be as short as seven pages. It can be 100 pages. But you this can is what parents need to do if their children are minors and can't talk just to have in place for other caregivers when they're out of town. It's very that similar. Would, it Very similar. A little more in-depth because you, don't have, you can't call them on the cell phone when they're at the movie and say, hey, what should I do about this? So it's a little more in-depth. Um, but, yeah, it is for caregivers to step in and help and take care of somebody, and then you leave it should you pass away, then your child, adult child often, is protected and has a more seamless life, a better improved life. Fontaine, are you seeing people with letters of intent, or is this something you wish you could see? We do see it sometimes. We don't see it as often as we would like. Um, But to speak to that, it's kind of what I touched on earlier. The earlier we can start a relationship with a family that is planning to use Cumberland as their corporate trustee for their child with special needs, the better. And we see that in several ways. Sometimes it is, as you said, where we are co-trustee with a parent for maybe a trust that was funded from grandparents. Uh, We have several of those. Or we might be the trustee for um, a trust holding that life insurance policy. And while that's not as day-to-day intensive, at least does give us regular touch points with the family to get to know them and understand. And then the third type that works really well is people that have put us in their documents and work with us to make sure that we have at least yearly, sometimes biannual, you know, and quarterly meetings just to make sure everybody's still on the same page to update any changes in that child's condition, any changes in the other team members. Uh, What's really hard is when somebody you know, works with someone like Kristen or gets our name from someone like Kathy, puts us in the documents, and we don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, a parent has passed away, and you have a grieving child who can't take care of themselves, who then all of a sudden may have to move from their home to a residential facility. It turns the whole thing upside down and makes it much more emotionally difficult on Everyone. Okay, so so I'll, I'll throw this out yeah. to either Kathy or Fontaine. When you find out in advance that you're going to be named in a trust that may not come into effect until later on, do you do you find that you have a lot of input into what should go into that trust or what things you'd like to see in that trust? 
I, I know uh, people we, like Christian we, already know what they think ought to be in it. We try, I think is the answer I can give you. We work very vigilantly um, to do some of that life planning and to ask those questions. We ask for the meetings. I'm sure Fontaine does too. I mean, you do your best. It is unfortunately, um, particularly with this generation of baby boomers, it's a little challenging because I don't think they think they're going to age. Um, they keep putting it off. We're, we've actually kidded around about having getting around to it parties because they don't get around to it. And they put it off and put it off and put it off, and so it becomes more problematic. Okay. Well, 70% of the population dies without a will. Um, and if you don't have a will, you don't have a special needs trust. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the question often comes up, well, when should we do and start special needs planning? And the answer is the sooner the better, because you never know when your will is going to mature. <laughs> when, when we talk about the 70% who die without a will, do we know a statistic of those who have special needs children or adult children who die without a will? It seems to me that might be a different universe. I don't know a specific percentage. Um, parents of children with special needs are probably more mindful of the need to do a special needs plan, but they have so much on their plate. They're dealing with putting out fires every day that many times going to the lawyer's office, which of course is the highlight of anyone's week, um, normally doesn't make it to the top of the priority list. Let, let's talk about some pitfalls that, that I see at Gaslitch Frankel, we only deal with the problems. So I see a lot of the bad that happens. And one of the bad things I, happen, I see in special needs trust is the trustee inadvertently broke a rule and, and now makes the trust susceptible to problems. So kind of talk about what some of those problems might be and ways that trustees could avoid them. And, and I, it may end up saying that the really best way to do this is to use a professional trustee. But what are some of the pitfalls? Well, I'm a big fan of professional trustees. Um, being the trustee of a special needs trust is not for the faint of heart. Not only do you have the normal fiduciary duties that apply to every trust, but then you have this whole government benefits overlay that the trustee has to be intimately familiar with. In the early days of special needs trust, um, Medicaid and Social Security used to um, crater the beneficiary's eligibility for benefits by picking on um, a, a faulty trust agreement. Today, the battleground is trust administration, to your point. And um, many corporate trustees will not accept special needs trust because it is so easy to mess it up. And every trust agreement that I draft authorizes and encourages trustees to retain the services of allied professionals that can help make sure that they don't um, mess up the administration by doing an incorrect disbursement, those T sorts tell, of things. Tell us what some of the mess-ups can be, because this is where I, I see individuals with wonderful intentions making, in hindsight, very bad mistakes. Well, the, probably the biggest mistake is um, you can't give cash to the beneficiary of a special needs trust because that will count against them for purposes of these means-tested benefits. So a well-intentioned family member who's dealing with a beneficiary that has a disability but can still do their own shopping, for example, might say, uh, you know, you need a new wheelchair this year? Here's a check for $5,000. Go out and, and buy one can't do that, but the trustee should instead deal directly with the provider of goods and services to get whatever the beneficiary needs. 
I think I think it is it is the Medicaid rules that you know the government rules that people sometimes don't understand and think they're doing the right thing, being helpful. I'm sure you see this in your practice. The other we see is siblings. So the parents are gone. You have siblings who disagree about what's to happen. Have siblings ever agreed? I, I seem to remember Cain and Abel or something. Yeah, there's I, something like that. Yeah, those siblings. They can just. Um, you'd be surprised how many. Um, People get dumped on our doorstep because the siblings are fighting, and they don't want to take care of them anymore, and they drop them off at our place and say, or an emergency room, and then the emergency room calls us and says, okay, you got to step in, and we become mediators. Well, this, this actually is what I'm seeing in a lot of, of the areas that you, it's a big burden on siblings. Huge. And it's hard to figure out, and though they're the most logical person to assist, it's a burden they have their whole life. This is something that we really struggle with a lot of parents. Their, their knee-jerk reaction is to put full responsibility for the child with a disability on the shoulders of a typical sibling without a disability. And um, there, that is generally not a good idea. And I referenced before putting together the team of allied professionals. While it's not reasonable to expect a sibling to do the job of all 10 team members, every team needs a quarterback. And so it is the perfect responsibility to assign to a typical sibling, that of being the quarterback of the team of allied professionals. So, so you'd name the, the sibling as a guardian, but not the one responsible for doing everything? That's correct. And and many of these families, you've heard us refer several times to adult children with disabilities that have lived in the family home for 50 and 60 years. Mm -hmm. And the parents have done everything for those adult children. And if that parent were to put down in writing a job description, what do you do for your child with a disability, it would be 10 pages long. And anyone that they would approach um, with the question, would you be guardian of our adult child with a disability, would run screaming the other way. But if you divide that job description up into 10 separate jobs, people can get their arms around that. and and and. People can say, I can be the quarterback if I can delegate to 10 team members. That is the biggest concern that we see with our families is who is going to be willing to be guardian of our child. And, and Fontaine, are you seeing both successes and failures in this designation? And you could, this is a fun question, tell us where you were a good success, where they did a good job of integrating the family member, but not overburdening them to the point that it didn't succeed. And then hopefully with humor or, or sensitivity, where it didn't work out. Well, I definitely want to start with more of the success story. Um, and we do see a lot of those. And I think, you know, as Kristen said, it is taking that proactive approach, uh, not only from the family, but also from that team of allied professionals. I will say for us as the corporate trustee, the biggest successes we have are when that team is brought together early and often. Uh, in the times that I've worked with Kristen, it is great because she, you know, without fail has me come in to meet the family to talk about Cumberland. She doesn't just say, oh, there's this corporate trustee that we work with. And it allows me to get an immediate face-to-face. -face. Uh, often I can follow that up by setting them up with one of our special needs trust officers and getting that relationship started. When they also incorporate the sibling either at that meeting or in a separate situation to have a conversation and let them know 
what the plan is and make sure that they know who all the team members are, it, it all just gets easier and easier. And so, um, you know, we have a case now where uh, it's currently a mother and she cares for her special needs son. And she is sort of the quarterback, but it has gotten much easier for her when she can call uh, Jacqueline Barry, who runs our special needs department and is, and is the trust officer in this case, and say, Jacqueline, you know, we need to get these medications and we need to get a waiver because we're going on a trip and we need to be able to get, you know, 60 days instead of 30 days. And we're going to need to buy the following things. And then Jacqueline can just take care of that. Um, and Jacqueline can then send an email when it's done and she sends it to the mother and the person who will be responsible when that mom has passed away. Um, let's, let's take a break. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Adam Gasowitz from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. And we're talking to Fontaine Lee, Kathy Keeley, and Kristen Lewis about special needs trust. I interrupted you. Tell me now the the, the, the unsuccessful and how you wish sure. you could have solved it. Um, I won't go into a, a specific case with unsuccessful, but I will say that when we have been put in place as the corporate trustee and empowered with the ability to handle the finances from that area, it becomes much less of an issue when that sibling doesn't step up because we're there to do that. And we've been given the ability to make sure that that individual is taken care of. Uh, and, you know, I'll speak to a case where there wasn't a sibling. We have a client who was an only child. His parents were both only children. Uh, we did start working with him before his parents had passed away. There was a great life care plan in place. And when his mother passed away, he was all alone. But his mom and the trust officer had worked together to pick out the residential facility, and he had gone with them. So our trust officer, you know, not only did she attend the mother's funeral and sit with the gentleman, she then helped him pack his things and move into the facility, and she spent time teaching him to ride the bus to and from his job where he stocked shelves and was able to teach him, you know, let him keep a very small checking account of about $200 a month and to work with him on that. She even taught him how to do his laundry, and she is able to stop in and the residence where he lives on a regular basis and just make sure that everything is going according to plan. Um, you know, and that could be a similar situation where a sibling didn't step up. But as long as you have somebody in place whose job it is and they have willingly accepted that responsibility to really step in for the parents, it's going to be okay. And but, this is something that Kathy and her staff do yeah, every day. Absolutely. Every day. I was going to say, we even try and go upstream from that. And we're working with a fair number of parents now where we're taking them out looking at residential places 10 years before they need it. We're looking, we're putting together that life plan. We're talking to the siblings and we're negotiating between the parents and siblings about what the real role should be, could be, what the right role is. Um, we're encouraging people and we'll go in and help do the laundry. Let's learn to do the laundry now instead of later. Let's learn to use ride MARTA. We spent three years teaching people how to use the bus line before they finally learn it. So we're doing a lot of preventive or proactive. Let's get ready without talking about the will maturing, which is the proper way of saying it. <laughs> so we have code words, if you will. Yeah. But we're really trying to help people to get ready and help we worry about the siblings. We want them to be more comfortable and not have this huge sort of worry burden. So if we can do some things now that are built in, it makes everybody's life easier, well, thinking lot, about lot, the future. Yeah, a lot of time when the parents die, uh, they were the, the guardian during the lifetime of that uh, child. Do you normally have someone else step in as a successor guardian? Do you go to that 
that legal trouble, or do you just work with the remaining family members? In our experience, many families that have adult children with disabilities do not take the step of um, appointing a legal guardian prior to their death, which is not a good thing. Um, but it's understandable. Um, these parents spend their entire lives emphasizing the abilities of their adult children, uh, and the nature of a guardianship is the exact opposite, their vulnerabilities and what they need help doing. And a lot of parents just don't want to go there. And so um, in my experience, as long as one or both of the natural parents is still living, third parties, doctors, et cetera, will continue to deal with them on a nod, nod, wink, wink basis, um, knowing that they're violating every HIPAA rule in the book. But as soon as neither biological parent is on the scene, the brakes are on. And um, then you're in a dangerous situation if there is nobody legally authorized to make health care decisions for this adult child with a disability. So we always, in a parent's will, have an appointment of a guardian, a, a lineup of guardians. Just because you name someone in your will to serve as guardian doesn't mean they'll do it when called upon to do so. Will you need court approval of that appointment? You do, but at least there's no fighting over who gets to be the guardian, and that's not typically an issue when you're dealing with an adult child. There's not a lot of people clamoring to get that appointment. Maybe the inverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, uh, let's talk about the structure of the trust for a minute in terms of what kind of assets you'd normally want to put into a special needs trust and how those assets get managed once the trust is established. Fontaine or Kristen, do you have any well, thoughts on Well, as I mentioned, the number one funding mechanism for special needs trust is life insurance. 100% of the families that I work with have some amount of life insurance going into a trust. Um, but, I mean, once the trustee is presented with the millions of dollars of life insurance, then it has to be invested. Many times, um, one of the assets will be a home for the adult child with a disability. I mean, most of the families we deal with want their children to live in a regular neighborhood and not be institutionalized. And so um, certainly uh, that is not an inexpensive proposition. Uh, you know, most homes, if they're anything like mine, are a black hole of expenses. So if, if a family wants to have a home as an asset of a special needs trust, they need to make sure there's enough funding to sustain the carrying costs of that home. Fontaine, is that really something a trustee wants to manage, a home in the trust? Well, yes and no. Um, it is one way that we can ensure um, that there are appropriate environments for an individual, particularly if they have a physical disability. Um, it also can help ensure that, again, those funds are used properly. It is amazing to me when we get a call from somebody saying that they need to put in a you know, $100,000 in-ground swimming pool and spa because they've been told that water therapy is good for their you know, child with physical disability. Uh, how about a membership to the Y? Okay. You know, I want to go back on the size of the trust and just, because we meet a lot of people that are really think that it's for the wealthy, that they can't do a small trust. And that's one of the things this Georgia Community Trust, which is a pool trust, provides people the opportunity with a few thousand dollars even to set it aside or a very small life insurance policy you know, as small as $10,000, they can set one up and have the investments pooled but still have the opportunities to have a trust. 
And, so and even if it's it, not a substantial, it's still a good supplementation. It it would help a lot with medic. Remember, you got seven hundred and thirty-five dollars a month to live on. So that's it. So if you have that, maybe some food stamps, maybe. Um, if you qualify, yes, $10,000 spread out can help because it's invested, it's earning something, so it depends how you allocate it. Well, sp- speaking of the wealthy then, since a lot of our listeners may have some substantial wealth, um, if you're wealthy, do you need to set up a special needs trust if government benefits are not really your concern? Even more so. Let me say that one of the biggest surprises in my special needs planning practice um, started about 10 years ago when uh, very wealthy families who had excellent private insurance or were private pay didn't need the $733 a month for anything. And they were coming to me for special needs planning because they determined, and it was brought to their attention, that their great wealth that used to buy them access to whatever they wanted for their child with a disability wasn't going to get their child into the program, the life skills program, for example, or a community-based living arrangement, um, and that their child had to be theoretically eligible for SSI and Medicaid to gain access to those programs. And the the very first client who had this problem came to me and said, we offered to buy and put the West Wing on their rehab facility. And they said, well, we'd be happy to take your money, but that's not going to get your kid into our program. And so there are many programs and services that are not private pay options. So if we're, if we're talking about this on a very practical basis, if you're somebody with wealth and because the programs are being offered essentially on a needs basis – one way to resolve that is to be eligible for the program and then to be very generous in your giving, either to that program or other programs so that you feel – because I, I, I could see the tension between not wanting to use a government service and, on the other hand, not having access to programs. That might be a nice way to kind of skin that cat. Mm-hmm. Is that what people are doing or am I wishful thinking? Um, it- You would think that more families would be charitably inclined toward the organizations that have supported their adult children with disabilities. I do not see a lot of that yet, and I'm not sure why that is. Many families simply can't afford it. They need every dollar to go to the special needs trust for their child. Um, But I think this is a great education opportunity for all of us allied professionals that serve families with special needs issues. Can I ask a kind of a very basic question, then we can go back to the substance. When you do a special needs trust, does it need to be approved by any governmental entity? Well, yes, it does. And uh, Georgia is very fortunate. Um, We have a designated trust review and accounting unit that has been established by the um, Georgia Medicaid folks, the Department of Community Health. And they do an excellent job. Uh, Both first-party and third-party trusts need to be reviewed, which brings me to a point that we have not discussed, another big difference between a first-party and a third-party trust, uh, is that with respect to a first-party trust, the deal with the government is if there's any money left in a first-party trust when the beneficiary passes away, Medicaid has the right to be paid back. If there's nothing in the trust to pay Medicaid back, then Medicaid goes away empty-handed. But if there is something in the trust, you call up Medicaid and say, how much do we owe you? So if we're dealing with a personal injury and we set up a fund, 
what that tells the fiduciary is try to figure out a plan that maximizes the benefits to the beneficiary through his or her life, knowing that at the end, the money will not go to family. It will go to paying back the government for the assistance. Correct. And that's not true with a third-party plan. And and this is one of the biggest mistakes that we see for people who do not do a lot of special needs trust work. They'll include in a third-party special needs trust this Medicaid payback, and that is legal malpractice, A, and B, free money for Medicaid. And so there's a lot of misinformation about there. Families have heard about this Medicaid payback deal, and they erroneously think that it applies even to third-party trusts that they would set up under their will or on a pre-need basis, and that is not true. Now, when the, the, the community services approves the trust, do they tell you, you know, you, this is a mistake here? And, and when the tr- in other words, are the trusts good trusts after they've been approved where they come help you solve problems in the drafting? Well, we we are very fortunate. Bill Overman is the director of the Trust Review and Accounting Unit, and he is in a, a kinder, gentler mode compared to the rest of the country, where people, lawyers who are brave enough to start drafting special needs trust, if they don't do it quite right, Bill Overman will tell them how to fix it and give them an opportunity to fix it. That is not the case in many regions around the country where they're just waiting for drafting attorneys to make a mistake to disqualify the beneficiary from benefits. And once the trust is approved, and let's assume we're in Georgia and Bill Overman actually really does assist, is there an annual reporting requirement? Once you're in the system, having had your trust approved, you now are responsible once a year for telling um, DCH, Medicaid, what did you spend the money on? And a lot of times, uh, first-party special needs trusts, obviously, they have a dog in that hunt. They get what's left in the trust when the beneficiary dies, so they want to know what exactly have you spent the money on. Even with third-party trust, though, it is necessary to send in an annual accounting saying, what did you use the property for? Not because they're going to get what's left in the third-party trust, but as I mentioned before, the current battleground with Medicaid and Social Security is how was the trust administered? And so if an annual accounting for a third-party trust shows that something was not spent properly, that is another angle for um, jeopardizing the beneficiary's benefits. So a, a potential pitfall and another kind of nod towards using a professional. We're nearing the end of our show, so I'm going to ask each of you kind of, you know, 30 seconds, tell me a, a success story of how using a special needs trust assisted a family. We'll start with Kathy. So I, you know, I'm like you. I don't get a lot of success stories. People come to us because of problems. I think for us it is um, we have a number of individuals who support. The parents have done the letter of intent. They got us involved early. There is a, you know, the trust is set up. The funding is there. The rules work with Medicaid. Um, and the siblings have peace of mind. They're able to work with it as opposed to worry or avoid it. Excellent. Kristen, you have? Most of the families that I work with um, don't believe that any amount of money is enough to leave to support their child. And so every special needs plan that I put in place is a success story because the government benefits pay for what they'll pay for, and then um, the special needs trust supplements that nobody wants their child to be at the sole mercy of Medicaid or SSI. Excellent. 
Fontaine? You know, I would just kind of echo what Kristen said in that we have so many success stories. It is hard to hone in on just one. But uh, the woman who runs our special needs department, Jacqueline Berry, has a board in her office with a picture of every one of her clients. And she can tell you every one of their stories. And she is part of their lives because these families have come to rely on her and her team so greatly. Um, from things like if you have a first party and a third party, which one do we go to for a certain need? You know, how do we get the tax filings done? Can we use it to pay for this? Uh, just knowing that there is somebody there who is as invested in caring for this child as they are. And uh, that is part of the reason that we have absolutely fallen in love with this part of our business and we'll, we'll never walk away from it as many trusts And, I, and I do want to mention for you that it actually does do in Georgia too. You mentioned that you're in Tennessee. Right. But we are in, you're in Georgia as well. Yes. Okay. Uh, why don't you each uh, sort of one at a time give uh, our audience contact information, uh, how they can get a hold of you, phone numbers, hashtags, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I think Fontaine, why don't we go ahead. Yeah, so our website is www.cumberlandtrust.com. As Craig mentioned, we are headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee, but we have additional offices in Knoxville, Chattanooga, Atlanta, Tampa, Austin, Dallas, and Memphis. And uh, contact information for those individual offices is on the website. Uh, my email address is klewis at sgrlaw.com, and I actually answer my own phone if I'm at my desk. What a concept. You have a phone? <laughs> I Catholic. do. Catholic. So we're uh, www.aadd.org. We're on Facebook as AADD, very active Facebook. Um, and our phone number, 404-881-9777. People can call for help. Excellent. I want to thank Fontaine Lee, Kristen Lewis, and Kathy Keeley for sharing their expertise. I know we could go on for 45 hours. I know I'd want to learn more. And I want to thank everyone for listening today to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. You've heard how to talk to, to connect with some of our guests. If you want to connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters or visit our website at gasowitzfrankel.com. And of course, please listen to us every fourth Wednesday at 8.30 in the morning on Wealth Matters.